it seems like during election years that the word evangelical is used more than other times. A particular poll might show that among evangelical Christians, a particular candidate has more support than others. And this use of the word evangelical seems to have watered down the term just a little bit. We now take it to basically mean anyone who is Christian or claims to be Christian. It almost seems to be another way of saying an American with morals. And while the term evangelical has many many different definitions and while it has been watered down, I would argue that a simple but true to the word kind of way to define it would be to say Bible-believing Christians. And that may seem obvious that if you're a Christian that you are Bible-believing But in reality, there are many who call themselves Christians who don't believe the Bible the same way that me and you do. They may believe it to be a good story or book for teaching, but may doubt its historical accuracy. They may believe that it's historically accurate, but doubt some of the dogma that's presented in the Bible. But we as evangelical Christians hold the scriptures to be the true word of God. And it is through those scriptures that we can have knowledge of God. So we certainly are Bible-believing Christians, but I want us to ask today, what do we believe about the Bible? And in particular, what do we believe about how we got the Bible? Because if we believe that it is the inerrant and infallible Holy Word of God, then I think it's helpful to study its origin and its composition and then its compilation, how it was brought together. When we discuss the Bible in this way, the word that we typically use is canon, or if talking about the process of the Bible coming together, we use the word canonization. Theologically speaking, canon, that is with one N, is a term used to describe the collection of the 66 books that we call the Bible given to us by God. So you may just think, okay, the word canon is synonymous with the word scripture. And while that may be technically true, the word canon describes more than that. Typically, when someone refers to the canon of Scripture, they're talking about the processes in which the divine book became recognized as Scripture by the church. The reason that we even have this word in this area of study is because of the complexity of God's word. Not necessarily in the content of the word, because its truths are simple enough for any to understand, but it is complex in its origin. Consider me just for a moment the the New Testament, made up of 27 books written by nine different authors over a period of around 50 years or so. The Old Testament is even more diverse in writers and spans an even greater amount of time. But for the sake of our discussion and, and to keep it simple, we'll just talk about the canonization of the New Testament. But think about that variety, though. Because of that variety in dates and authors, there's a process in which it was discovered, in which it was believed and recognized as Scripture, and there's a process in which it was circulated. Had God just hand-delivered a completed Bible once Jesus left the earth, there'd be no need for the word canon or its study. But because God, in His perfect plan, used human authors to record His words, and because He did so progressively, that is, over a period of of time, then there is this basis for studying the way in which these books were written, compiled, and then recognized as the Word of God, the Bible. And that latter thing is the thing that we're going to focus on more 
today. How was it that these books of the Bible became recognized as the Word of God? And that's ultimately what we're asking when we talk about canon, is how did these books get in and not others? Through what means did God preserve and keep His Word pure? Before we go any further, I want us to look at John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. It says, this is Jesus speaking, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Here we see Jesus intends for the Spirit to guide the apostles in truth, to remind them of truth, and to remind them of what He has said. You can read that earlier in John. And the apostles take that truth declared from the Spirit, and they write it down. And from that we have the Word of God. So Jesus intended for us to have this Word, and for us to know this Word, this, this Bible, to follow it, because through it, Jesus gives life. He heals. He restores what has been broken by sin. So as people of this book, as evangelical Christians, I think it's important that we ask, how did we get this book? As we try to answer these questions, I want us to walk through what have been called the criteria of canonicity. These are several tests or criteria that a document had to have before it could be considered scripture or, or canon. At this point, though, it's important that I make a very serious caveat, and that is this. The church, that is the, the early church, the early gathering of, of Christians, or even the early Roman Catholic church, did not create the canon. The canon of scripture was created by God, but, but through his plan... Much like the writing of Scripture itself, God involved man. So Scripture was inspired by God, it was preserved by God, and it was put together by God, but it was through man, and particularly the early churches, that God did this. So the church did not create the canon. It didn't even deem if a particular book was canon or Scripture or not. Instead, it recognized that a particular book of the Bible was Scripture or not. It's important to know that every word of God, even before it was compiled and tested, was already the word of God. It didn't need the church to approve it before it had any power or authority. Churches were following the teachings of Paul and studying the Gospels long before all the works were brought together and approved, quote-unquote, as Scripture. So these tests that we're going to look at and discuss are not what give the books of the Bible its status as Scripture. Instead, they are the means by which the church recognized what God had already given as Scripture. And it's the means by which other books, which weren't Scripture, which weren't breathed out by God, are excluded from being called Scripture or canon. So let's walk through each of these tests, these criteria, they have been pretty universally understood, but the wording that I'm using is from a book called The Canon of Scripture by F.F. F. Bruce. The first is apostolic origin. 
this particular criterion questions the authorship of the text. In order for a New Testament document to be recognized as Scripture, it needed to have been written by someone who was either an apostle or close to one of the apostles of Jesus. The second criteria is called antiquity. Since the work had to have apostolic origin, it makes sense that the date of the original manuscript, that is the original writing, had to come from the apostolic era. That is to say that it had to be written during the time the apostles were alive, or otherwise it wouldn't be possible for it to have been written by an apostle. So works that were written after the dates of the apostles, no matter how edifying or helpful, would not be recognized as Scripture and thus not included in the canon. Third is the test of orthodoxy. This has been called by other people uh, the test of a consistent message or criteria of a consistent message. This is a test of the theology presented in a particular book or letter. If there was a message in a book that was inconsistent with previously accepted scripture, then that book or letter would not have been considered canonical. This is particularly important. If the word of God is to be true and inerrant, then the messages within concerning salvation and theology cannot be inconsistent. It's important that as a church, that when it comes to important theological truths about God, about sin, salvation, humanity, that we're all on the same page, that we believe what the Bible says. So it's especially important that the Bible is clear. And this criteria, this test, ensured that the works that the church would use to teach and lead Christians would be consistent with one another. Paul seemed to think along these lines as well. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 8-9, through 9, he says, But even if we, talking about himself, other apostles, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So Paul is to say, even if I write something else to you, and I tell you that it's the Word of God, if it's contrary to what I have already said, it's wrong. And he basically says, let me or, or whoever does that be cursed to hell. So this idea of orthodoxy or consistency was an extremely important test that was used to discern whether or not a work truly was the Word of God. The fourth test or criteria is called Catholicity. This is not a term related to the Roman Catholic Church, rather it's a term that means that a work had to be widely or universally recognized as Scripture before it could be considered canon. This caused some of Paul's letters to be questioned as to whether or not they were truths for the entire church or just local churches that he wrote to. However, even though they were first only locally understood to be canon or Scripture, they would soon be circulated to other churches and they would then receive the same universal or Catholic recognition as Scripture. The fifth test is traditional use. That is to say that a book had to be recognized universally and used by the church. Other people have listed this particular criteria as called liturgical use. And that's to say that it had to be publicly read alongside the, the Old Testament, which was already understood to be Scripture, during church services, during communion, in order for that book to be considered 
canon. It had to be used by the church regularly. The sixth test of Scripture, the sixth criteria is inspiration. The question here is, is this text God-breathed? While this test alone would be hard to discern, the truth is that if a book met all the other criteria, if it was in orthodoxy or consistent, if it was widely used and accepted by the church, then it had been that way because it was inspired by God. We cannot forget that while God is using man to accomplish this task, ultimately it is God who has given us His Word. So because a text is inspired by God, it then will go forth and be used and recognized by the church. Ultimately, we trust that God in His sovereignty and His providence has preserved for us in the Bible the words that He intended for us to have. But at the same time, it's amazing to see how God used ordinary means, such as the church compiling the works of Scripture to do this extraordinary act of giving us His Word. So given these six criteria or, or tests, I want to ask you a question, just a real practical question. If an archaeologist found today a perfectly preserved and 100% real copy of another letter from Paul that had until this point been unheard of, would we then add it to our Bibles? Because it would pass the test or the criteria of apostolic origin. It would pass the test of antiquity if it was written by Paul. And it would likely pass the test of orthodoxy, meaning that it wouldn't contradict other scripture. Would we then include it? And the answer is no. Because if it was lost, that means that it could not have been accepted universally as scripture meaning that it would not pass the test of Catholicity. It would not have been used traditionally or liturgically. And so because of these other criteria, we would know that no, it was not inspired by God to be Scripture. Just because an apostle writes something doesn't make it Scripture. Paul's letter to his mother wouldn't be Scripture. And so it has to pass these other uh, six criteria in order for it to be considered the Word of God, to be recognized as the Word of God. A second question that I want to ask you is this, and I'll leave this one unanswered, and you can think of it as like homework, and, and if you see me again soon, you can tell me what you think about this question. Did the writers of Scripture know that they were writing Scripture? Did, did some know and, and some not? Did none of them know or did all of them know? And in what capacity did they understand this if they did know they were writing Scripture? I know we've been talking mainly about the New Testament canon, but for this question, think about Old Testament texts as well and see what you come up with. Did the writers of Scripture, the human authors, know they were writing Scripture? So do some research, think through some Scriptures, and let me know what you think. And there is so much more that, be, that could be discussed and read and talk about this, about this question of canon. We could talk more about the actual writing of Scripture, the dates and all that. But I hope this has been a helpful overview into understanding and answering the question of how it is that we have these books of the Bible and not others. How is it that God for so long preserved His Word and kept it pure uh, for us to use, for us to have salvation through its 
words and through the knowledge of Jesus that comes through it. So the application to this topic, to this understanding of the canon is twofold. First, be amazed at the work that God has done in getting to us the gospel that we needed to hear in order to be saved. It was a great work that He has done for us. So be amazed at at the, the measures that He took to be sure that we would hear the Word of God, that we could be able to hear the Word of God and be saved. And secondly, because God has done this great work, because He has preserved it and kept it pure that we might have salvation, then, then don't neglect it. Read it. It would be such a shame for us to have to have this amazing work of God, the literal words of God, and to treat it as just some other book or to treat it as some moral God. So be amazed at what God has done and then read it for yourself to see the life-giving truth that's in it. Let me close by reading a passage from Scripture about Scripture. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Henderson Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit us on Facebook or check out our website, hendersonbaptist.org.